And while the children are going, let me invite the rest of us to turn in our Bibles this morning to the book of Leviticus. Third book in your Bible, Genesis, Exodus, then Leviticus. And have your Bibles open there, please. And would you just join me as we look to God and ask for his help this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we do look to you uh, again very purposefully right now. We need you and we need to hear from you. Um, Our minds have been probably muddled a bit from all of the different things we've had to do and think about and hear. And so, God, I pray for the crystal clear clarity of your voice. Break in. Speak to us. Show us the goodness of your ways and your word and you. And Lord, in this book that is oftentimes just a difficult one for us to comprehend and we don't find ourselves necessarily drawn here. In fact, sometimes we're put off by this book. God, I pray, open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in your word. And so we pray for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are going to do something a little bit unusual today. I'm going to preach from a whole book. And it's a relatively long book. One of the things that we're wanting to do this year is to pay attention to the Bible reading plan that we've encouraged you to participate in in one way or another. And at several points this year, I've planned the preaching so there can be a correspondence between what we're reading and what we're hearing here on Sunday mornings. And we're going to do that actually in three different ways on three different levels. I mentioned on Anniversary Sunday that this year I want for us as a church together to pay special attention to the book of 1 Thessalonians. And we'll do that at a time when many of us will actually be reading that book in our reading plan, which will be in the middle of June. Now, obviously, there's going to be a different time span. 1 Thessalonians is a relatively short book, which the reading plan covers in five days. We, on Sunday morning, are going to take our time, and we're going to dive in, and there is a richness in that book that I'm eager for us to benefit from, and that I believe will be particularly timely for us these days. So that's one way, one level, a very close, careful, detailed look at a passage, an extended passage of Scripture. But there's another level. I also have been wanting us to get grounded in the book of Exodus. In fact, I've been wanting us to go there for some time now. Exodus exerts an unusual influence on our understanding of so much of the rest of the Bible. While it shows us about God and his purposes towards his people, it is so important. We're going to go there in just a couple of weeks And there will, again, be some overlap with our reading plan. But Exodus, 
unlike 1 Thessalonians, is a long book, 40 chapters. And if we were to go in-depth into that book, like we will in 1 Thessalonians, well, we'd be in Exodus for two years. So with Exodus, we're going to fly at a little higher level, concentrating not so much on details as on the kind of larger narrative of God's purposes and his ways, which I trust will help us benefit greatly from that great book. But there is also the possibility of a very high-level, high-altitude look at God's Word. Sometimes you can see things from a great height that you cannot see when you're close up. And so a few times this year, we're going to look at a whole book to get its larger message. At one point, for example, this year, I'm going to dedicate three consecutive Sundays to the great books of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, one each week. That is, if I don't get overwhelmed thinking about that beforehand. So you can pray for me. And it's this last approach, that high-altitude approach, that we're going to take today with this book of Leviticus. So, here's what usually happens. You're reading through your Bible. You've begun the year. You want to read through the Bible this year. And you're excited. You're motivated. You get off to a great start. You read through the book of Genesis, which is very interesting. It's, I mean, highly personable. You see God at work in people's lives. And then you come to Exodus, and you read through it, and it's interesting, full of dramatic things happening as God cares for and forms his people. And then you come to Leviticus. And you start to read it, and it doesn't take long at all, and you find yourself thinking, what is this? And you're reading about sacrifices in great and repetitive detail, and you're reading these strange rules about leprosy, and what you can eat and what you can't eat, and other stuff that makes you kind of cringe when you read it. I mean, this is the place where everybody says they get bogged down. Leviticus. You find yourself asking, what is this strange book doing in my Bible? It seems so incomprehensible, and it seems so irrelevant to me. What can this book possibly have to do with my life now? Well, let me try to answer that question right away this morning. Leviticus is here in your Bible to make us, both, both the original readers and us, all of God's people, it's here to make us aware of a great need on the part of human beings. And it's pointing us ahead to a great solution to that need. Leviticus is making us aware. All of this stuff that we read in Leviticus is making us aware that there's a great need, a great problem, and it's pointing us ahead to a great solution. If you had to identify the central message of this book, here's what it would be. God is holy, and he requires his people to be holy. God is holy. He is a living, all-powerful being who is marked by his holiness, by his absolute perfection in his moral character. And he requires his people to also be holy so that they might reflect him 
and faithfully represent him and that they might live in the good of his holiness. And that, that requirement creates a situation of great need because the problem is, as you know, we're not holy. We're sinful. And only those without sin can be in right relationship with God and be with him in his presence. So there is this situation of great need. Something has got to be done. And the book of Leviticus is all about something being done. This elaborate system of rules and rituals and priests and sacrifices. But what we find out even within Leviticus is that this elaborate system doesn't actually solve the problem. It's only like, like a little Band-Aid on a deep wound. There's no, there's no real solution here for anybody. The book of Leviticus is making us profoundly aware of the size and the depth of the need. God is holy, and somehow something big has to be done in order for sinful people to be able to be with God in his holiness and to actually be like God, distinctive, representing him in the world. But ultimately, what Leviticus sets forth doesn't work. It, it just makes us aware of the need and how big and how weighty and how all-encompassing the solution is going to need to be. It's just a shadow of the real substance, the real solution. I know a man who had a teenage son who was struggling in his own reading of the Bible, and the son came to the father and said to him, Dad, where should I go read in my Bible? And the dad responded by saying two, two places. You should read the Gospel of Mark just to find out who Jesus is and what he's really like. And then he said, secondly, you should read the book of Leviticus in order to find out all of the things you don't need to do because of what Jesus has done. I mean, you've got to give it to that dad. Give it to the son for at least having some humility and wisdom to go to his father and be willing to ask, but you've got to give it to this dad. I mean, that just feels like brilliance to me. Read the book of Leviticus to find out all of the things that you don't have to do because of what Jesus has done. There, there is in your bulletin this morning, maybe you found this already, this insert. I have tried here to give an overview of the book of Leviticus. You see that quote at the top, you shall be holy for I am holy. That is the central message of the book and it is repeated multiple times in the book. You'll notice that as you read through it. But then what you see in those columns kind of going across is a section by section summary of what's in this book. And there's a pattern that I want you to see. You see there in chapters 1 through 7, these rituals, the sacrifices. And then over on the other side, in chapters 23 through 25, there's more rituals, these seven feasts. You see in chapters 8 through 10, representatives, the priests, specifically Aaron and his sons. And on the other side, in chapters 21 through 22, you see more representatives, the Levites. 
You see in chapters 11 through 15 rules about all kinds of things, including a bunch of things that are uncomfortable to read about. And on the other side, in chapters 18 through 20, more rules about all sorts of things in daily life. And if you were to go to the very end of the book of Leviticus, the very last verse, these are the words you would read. These, referring to all this stuff, these are the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses for the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. All these rules, all these regulations, all these rituals, but right in the middle of it all, on purpose, is instruction about what is called the Day of Atonement. It's the centerpiece of the book, this instruction about this once-every-year ritual that God's people were to observe. And we're going to turn there in just a few minutes and focus our attention there this morning. But what I want you to see is that all of this, these rituals, these representatives, these rules, they are here to begin to show what is necessary for a sinful people to have a relationship with the Holy God. Which, by the way, we need. We need to be in relationship with God. We were made for that. Apart from that, your life, my life, would be absolutely meaningless. Being in relationship with God is not some kind of take-it-or-leave-it proposition. No, we were made to be with Him. Without Him, we're doomed. But there's a huge problem. So God establishes this elaborate, provisional system of rituals and representatives and rules to try to communicate how significant is this problem and to suggest what a solution is going to have to include. But in itself, this system is not a solution. It wasn't meant to be. I want you to see that verse on the bottom of the insert. It, it communicates a really important, so important truth. This is the Apostle Paul speaking about the Old Testament rules and regulations and rituals, and he says these are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance, the reality, belongs to Christ, is in Christ. All of this that we read about in Leviticus is pointing ahead to the real thing, the real solution. Christ is the true and ultimately effective sacrifice. Christ is the true and ultimately effective representative. He is our great high priest. Christ is the true and ultimately effective fulfillment of God's rules. Christ fulfills all of this, and he fulfills it perfectly so that all of this stuff is done. It's no longer needed. You see now the brilliance of that father's counsel to his son, Read Leviticus to see all the things you don't have to do because of what Christ has done. Friends, this is the great message of Leviticus, and I want us to see it this morning and, and to get it planted deeply in our hearts and in our minds, and that is captured with especially clear focus in Leviticus chapter 16 where we read the description of that Day of Atonement. So please turn with me there. Leviticus chapter 16. I'm going to read this whole chapter. This may well be the longest passage that I've ever publicly read 
from this pulpit. So stay with me. And to help you, I want you to pay special attention to what happens to those two goats. Leviticus chapter 16, this is God's word. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die for I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body and he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. And he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small and he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he does not die. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. And in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus, he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleannesses. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around and he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleannesses of the people of Israel. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins, and he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and shall take off the linen garments 
that he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there and he shall bathe his body in water in a holy place and put on his garments and come out and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. And the fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar. And he who lets the goat go to Azazel shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water and afterward he may come into the camp. And the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire. And he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water and afterward he may come into the camp. And it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves. That just simply means you shall fast and shall do no work either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement, wearing the holy linen garments, he shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Moses did as the Lord commanded. Now here are the important things to get from that. Three things we must get. First, the ritual of the Day of Atonement, just like so much of what we read in Leviticus, reminds us of the cost of sin. The wages of sin is death. We learn that way back in Genesis chapter 3. Remember when Adam and Eve sinned and death was introduced into the human experience. And the Bible makes sure to keep reminding us of that, that the wages of sin is death, because it's so easy for us to forget that. And here there is this stark and vivid reminder in the shedding of this blood, dealing with our sin involves cost, the taking of a life. That's the first thing we've got to get. Second is God's provision of a substitute. You know, we've seen this already in the story. When Adam and Eve sinned and God provided, remember this, he provided for them animal skins to cover them I mean, clearly at the cost of whatever animal he used to cover their sin, their shame. And we saw it also when God tested Abraham, remember? And he told him to sacrifice his son Isaac, and then at the last moment provided a substitute, that ram that was caught there right before them in that thicket. And here on the Day of Atonement, a bull is offered for Aaron's sin, and this goat is killed to make atonement for the sins of the people. Verse 15, then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people. 
and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel and because of their transgression and all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleannesses. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. God allowing, God providing something in our place. It's his grace, pure and simple, that he would allow a substitute. I mean, clearly that goat that is killed is not the guilty one. What a clear picture is here of substitution, of a substitutionary atonement. God forgiving us based on his judgment, having fallen on something, someone other than us. That's the second thing we need to get here. And then third, this clear message of the removal of our sin. That's where the second goat plays its role. Verse 21, Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins, and he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness. I mean, that, friends, is a clear symbol of the total removal of your sin. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. So three things here. The cost of our sin, the provision of a substitute, and the resultant removal of sin. But remember This is just a shadow. Please do not miss the last verse of Leviticus chapter 16. And this shall be a statute forever for you that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year. Every year. We got to do it again. Here we go again. The fact that this needed to be done every year, year after year, reminded the people that no ritual, however clear its message, could actually ultimately atone for sin. And this is where the good news of Jesus Christ is so sweet. Jesus did what no Israelite high priest ever accomplished. Jesus Christ, by offering himself, his life, his blood, as the perfect sacrifice in our place, made atonement for our sin once for all time. Let me just listen to the book of Hebrews. This is Hebrews chapter 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. 
And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. All these sacrifices, all these rituals, all that priestly representation, that has all, all of it, been fulfilled in the offering of Christ's own body and blood once for all for you. Listen, the Old Testament sacrifices and priests and rituals, they did their job. They had an illustrious career in the true sense of that word. They illustrated for us the seriousness of sin and the need for a final and perfect sacrifice, but in Jesus' sacrifice, the entire Levitical system has been retired. Jesus is the reality. Jesus is the substance that replaced the shadows. Listen, our righteousness, our holiness, is found only through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf. That's why he came. That's why he died. He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. If, if you have sinned, and that's all of us, he is the atonement that you need to make you holy. If you want to know right relationship with God, if you want to know God's mercy and his love, you must find it through Jesus or you will not find it at all. Friends, God is holy. He is not some small town deity, some whimsical, sentimental thing. He is God and he is holy, perfectly righteous, and demanding perfect righteousness. And we are sinners. We have all in our own way rebelled against God, but God. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. He gave his son as both priest and sacrifice, perfect, sinless, and he offered himself, and that is exactly what the book of Leviticus is pointing to, and as a result, people like you and me can not just know God, but we can be close to God and enjoy him, welcomed, loved, cared for, happy. All these shadows, all of this highly illustrative but ultimately ineffective stuff, only Jesus is reality. Only Jesus is the true 
solution. Well, let me close with this. A couple weeks ago, I, I made reference to John Bunyan, uh, the author of Pilgrim's Progress. Bunyan also wrote an autobiography. And in that autobiography, he shares a story about a moment of great doubt and then great assurance as he was struggling with his own awareness of his sin. Here, here's what Bunyan writes. One day, as I was passing in the field, and that too with some dashes on my conscience, fearing lest yet all was not right, suddenly this sentence fell upon my soul, thy righteousness is in heaven. And methought withal, I saw with the eyes of my soul Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There, I say, is my righteousness. So that wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say of me, he lacks my righteousness, for that was there before him. I also saw, moreover, that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was, was Jesus Christ himself. The same yesterday, today, and forever. Listen, friend, if you are in Christ, the same is true of you. My righteousness is Jesus Christ himself. The same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Yes, sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you for your word, even for this book that is so often a hard one for us. God, I pray that you would help us to read it rightly. Those who first heard it knew only darkly through a glass that it was pointing forward to something we know fully. And so as we read this book, Lord, I pray we would treasure Christ with all our hearts, this perfect one, this reality, who gave himself for us that we might live. Father, thank you. Thank you for the love that both sent your Son and the love in him that gave himself for us. Help us, Lord, to live in light of what he's done for us and in honor to him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.